And a hearty welcome to one and all. This is episode 78 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all for spending some of your Sunday evening here with me in New York. Another day without rain. Two in a row. Fingers crossed. And if you're checking out episode 78 on the YouTube channel, haven't done so already, click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications if you're enjoying the content, of course. If you're catching up with episode 78 on the audio platform, such as Spotify, iTunes, or the rest, same general rule applies. If you're enjoying the content, haven't done so already, please click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. Oh, and don't forget to comment as well. If you like the episode, you hate the episode, all good. So today is the 30th anniversary of the U.S. release date of Ace Ventura Pet Detective the movie which put Jim Carrey on a sudden path to superstar. It didn't make him a superstar by itself, and he was not a complete unknown before it was released, but it was the key film for him. And he, he had been around, as I mentioned when I, I discussed him when it was his birthday, that he had made a number of movies in the 80s. Um, he was the star of a, a kind of a culty comedy called Once Bitten, opposite Lauren Hutton, which is not a good movie, but it's very entertaining because of him. And he had a pretty significant supporting role in Francis Coppola's Peggy Sue Got Married, very good movie, in the vein of Back to the Future, slightly different angle. Uh, and he's very solid in Clint Eastwood's fifth and final Dirty Harry film, The Deadpool, in a smallish role, but his character is very important in the first act, and it's a dramatic role, and Jim really nails it. He did Earth Girls Are Easy with uh, Jeff Goldblum. Um, so he was working, but his appearance on the TV show and his kind of starring role with the Wayans brothers on In Living Color helped to keep him current and relevant, even as a younger comic doing stand-up. He appeared with Carson, and he made the talk show rounds, and the hosts all kind of marveled at his ability. and. Um, you know, not everybody gets that thumbs up, or they used to say, if Johnny gives you the thumbs up, you did something good, because normally he doesn't give a shit about, you know, it's just random comic, I don't know who this guy is. So In Living Color, based on his skill at sketch comedy and playing different characters and making them all seem different, where it felt like, how is this still Jim Carrey? Um, he showed that he had the ability to not only do different voices, different characters, but if need be, he could summon the will to kind of play the material straight. So he's cast in Ace Ventura, and the movie ends up getting terrible critical reviews. By and large, at least 80% of critics of the day trashed the movie. You know, Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly, a critic who later became a big fan of Jim Carrey, even going so far as to say that 1999's Milos Forman, phenomenal film, Man on the Moon, Lieberman had it as his number one film of that really great movie year of 1999. The year of Blair Witch, the year of The Matrix, the year of The Sixth Sense, the year of American Beauty. So many great films in that year. Man on the Moon was Lieberman's pick for best film. But five years earlier, Owen Lieberman didn't know Jim Carrey from a hole in the wall. And I read his review. I subscribed to Entertainment Weekly back then. Mostly pre-internet days. This is you got your news week to week, as opposed to, oh my God, look what Kanye did! Holy shit, did you see the outfit J Lo was wearing? 
learn about it in a magazine week to week. But Owen Gleiberman, now I saw the previews for Ace Ventura. I was going to the movies frequently at that time. 1993, I went to the movies a ton. The greatest year Hollywood ever had. That's a hill I'll go down on, 1993. I even got into a little bit of a back and forth with a guy named Brian Raftery who wrote a book arguing that 1999 was Hollywood's best year ever. I didn't tell him he was wrong. I told him, basically, my opinion is as valid as yours. But I saw previews for Ace Ventura Pet Detective. I was a fan of Jim Carrey going back to Once Bit. I didn't watch In Living Color, oddly enough, even though I considered myself a fan of his. I just never watched people. Oh, you should totally watch In Living Color. Never saw the show. I did not see one single episode or anything more than flipping channels. I never saw him as Fire Marshal Bill or some of his other, you know, memorable characters. But I wanted to see Ace Ventura based on the strength of the previews, which made it look fucking hilarious. Before the movie actually hit on that Friday, which presumably was February 4th of 1994, uh, the movie had screened for critics and Entertainment Weekly's issue for that week hit, and I grabbed it and bought it, and Owen Gleiberman gave the movie the dreaded F. He gave it an F. I guess for a fucking piece of shit, right? But he gave it an F. And you know, some publications went with a letter grade. Entertainment Weekly, I don't know about now, I haven't read it, but they went by a letter grade, with A plus being the best. That would be the equivalent of the old Siskel and Ebert, not thumbs up, thumbs down, but when they wrote their reviews for the print media and Ebert later online media, he did a one to four star ranking system. Many people prefer one to five to get a little more room to maneuver in there. But Entertainment Weekly did a letter score. And an F meant this movie is garbage. Don't waste your time. And that kind of made me a little bit depressed because I said, oh, geez, because I normally agreed with Owen Gleiberman. He, he was a, a an intellectual, but a critic on the order of Roger Ebert, I usually agreed with his take. Not all the time. There were plenty of critics I disagreed with frequently. David Denby, I usually agreed with. He wrote for New York Magazine. That was my second favorite critic behind Roger Ebert. Gleiberman would have been third. And Pauline Kael was already retired by that point. But when Gleiberman gave the movie an F, I was like, oh, this movie must suck. It wasn't just that he gave an F. He hated every frame of the film. He hated... Courtney Cox in a supporting role. He hated the story. He didn't even like Dan Marino's cameo or Don Shula's cameo. He hated everything. And the incredible quote, I will never forget his description of Ace Ventura. What's this character like? He's like an escaped mental patient impersonating a game show host. Wow. I mean, that's... Objectively speaking, a great quote. But he hated the movie. I didn't see it in theaters. Even though I saw a lot of movies in that time frame, I was constantly going to the movies. We had less entertainment options circa 93, 94. Really until we had these kinds of devices. We went to the movies. We rented movies, right? Blockbuster, whatever. So I didn't see Ace Ventura in theaters. I, I knew people who had seen it and they liked it, but nobody, nobody got me to go to see the film and it grossed well over a hundred million in, in the US, which, you know, now it's, it's money, but you, you start to do the inflation and, and the time value of money and all that kind of calculating stuff. $107 million US gross is a good gross for 1994. 
Now, unbeknownst to people like me, because the internet was in its infancy and all of this stuff was not well known ahead of time, by the time Ace Ventura hit theaters, Carrie was deep into production and possibly even already into post-production on The Mask. So I didn't know that, I figured, oh, this will definitely help his career, and I was excited that, hey, this guy who I've been a fan of for years already, it looks like he's on the rise. This is terrific. They started promoting The Mask that spring. Entertainment Weekly and also Premier Magazine was saying, the buzz is really good. If you like Jim in Ace Ventura, the word is this is a much better movie than Ace Ventura. That ended up being correct. Mask made over 300 million worldwide gross. Um, 351 million released in the middle of the summer of 94. And just for reference, that was the summer of Forrest Gump, The Lion King, and True Lies. The Mask was expected to probably be in the top 10 that summer, but nobody knew for sure. Listen, Premier Magazine had Forrest Gump either 12th or 13th. They didn't think that Forrest Gump was going to connect with audiences. And one of the things they said in the article was, every major studio passed on this film twice, there must have been a reason. Well, the reason was they couldn't see it. They didn't think that people would connect with it, but what do we say about Hollywood? William Goldman's famous line, nobody knows anything. They were pretty confident that The Mask was going to be a hit, but that wasn't just taking a guess. It was um, people who had seen some of the early test uh, shots as far as the special effects and what Jim Carrey was able to do. And the word coming off the set was, he's so rubbery, he's so ridiculously liable and malleable with his face and body, we're not going to spend as much on special effects as we would if this were anybody else. This guy is fucking amazing. So Mask comes out and is a humongous hit. And again, I don't know the mechanics of when Dumb and Dumber went into production. Because it was released in December, my assumption is when the buzz began to build on the mask a month or so before it was released, that's when Jim got Dumb and Dumber and they must have shot it quickly. Like I don't, there are certain situations where somebody is done with a movie and it doesn't come out for another year or eight months. But I feel like Dumb and Dumber was actively in production by the summer of 1994. And Dumb and Dumber, it, I don't love it, it's okay. I saw that movie in theaters. I saw the mask in theaters actually as well. I saw it twice, once in Florida, once, uh, at the movies at Sunrise Mall here in Massapequa, a theater that's long gone. Dumb and Dumber grossed almost $250 million. A lot of people would say that was the funniest film of the three. I liked it. I didn't love it. It, 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 was, it was just okay. You know, Lauren Holly is funny. Some of the supporting characters. Jeff Daniels, always great. The gross-out humor, which we saw um, in other Farrelly Brothers films like uh, There's Something About Mary, and Jim worked with them, uh, me, myself, and Irene. That kind of humor just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. So in the theater, that fateful December night, freezing night in 1994, I had recently had that surgery and I probably was wrapped up like the mummy, but I went to see the movie. And there's a scene in the film where Jim Carrey is angry with Jeff Daniels and he gives him, I forgot exactly what it was, but he gives him something to make him go to the bathroom, okay? And Jeff Daniels cannot, he cannot stop. He can't stop shitting. 
and he is screaming in pain and it's like you know yelling and carrying on and the audience around me is apoplectic level of laughter the same kind of laughter years later when ben stiller in the horrible first portion of there's something about mary farrelly brothers when he gets his you know what caught in his zipper I'm in a theater at the Broadway Mall in Hicksville. That theater still exists, by the way, thank goodness. There's 100 people in the theater, and at least 90 are screaming and crying with laughter as the intensity of Ben Stiller's predicament, sorry, I couldn't resist, that was the worst pun ever. But as his predicament gets worse and worse, people are screaming and carrying on. It was like me laughing at the Siskel and Ebert running gag in the movie Godzilla. It was that level of laughter. There were so many people that are almost over the top on the floor laughing at Ben Stiller, and there's something about Mary, and Dumb and Dumber, Jeff Daniels on the toilet. And I, I, it's not funny. Ben Stiller's agony in Something About Mary, not funny. In fact, I was angry at the movie for even wasting their time, and I'm looking around at people like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You think this is funny? I was actively hostile to the movie after that. Because it's just, say, well, you're allowed to do anything for a It's fine, it's not funny. It's not funny. To me, humor is very subjective. Jeff Daniels taking a crap in Dumb and Dumber for however long it was and screaming in pain, not funny. To me, people around me disagree. So while all this was going on, Ace Ventura, huge hit. By the time The Mask was out, Jim Carrey was a superstar. His rise to superstardom had completed. It was just about the fastest rise ever. I can't imagine anybody doing it quicker. You know, it's certainly not in the modern era. You want to argue James Dean back then, it's, that, that's a whole, other, a whole other thing. And then him getting cast, there, there were rumors that um, the producers of Batman, again, Michael Keaton was supposed to come back for Batman 3. He either quit just before production or he walked off after a couple of days because, you know, the idea was, I'm not even the star of my own movie. We don't know the exact mechanics of that because I've, I've seen it and read it reported differently depending on who's telling the story and even Michael Keaton. So we'll say that he left very early in the production of Batman Forever or just before production, that's fine. But there was talk that they were trying to get Robin Williams for the Riddler, and as soon as that came up, then there was the 1994 version of a groundswell of, hey, wait a minute, why don't they just go after the suddenly biggest commodity, the biggest, the hottest commodity, and soon to be the biggest star in Hollywood, just get Jim Carrey. If he you know, wants to do it, maybe he's already busy, you, know, you don't know these things. Now we see everybody's projects lined up on Internet Movie Database or wherever. So in very short order, Jim Carrey signed to play the Riddler in Batman Forever, and Val Kilmer, who, as I've said, absolutely loved Val Kilmer, signs on the dotted line, and they go ahead and they make a movie. And it was a huge box office success. Batman Forever, if it was not the biggest hit of 1995, it was right there. I believe the film grossed over 100 and, excuse me, over 400 million. This one I'm going to boot because, um, as I say, I don't like to, don't like to give uh, bad information. Batman Forever made $336.5 million, which is a staggering number. Now, The Mask did its 351 worldwide, so, you know, it was in, it was in the ballpark, but Batman Forever 
Um, it actually, it says it was the sixth highest grossing film in 1995. I forgot about Toy Story. Toy Story might have been number one. But that movie, despite the fact that the tone was a lot different, it was more comedic. Not an accident, because Tim Burton is a totally different aesthetic than Joel Schumacher, who did, who did part three and then part four. As much as I like Val Kilmer, Jim's the best thing about Batman Forever. The supporting cast, Tommy Lee Jones was coming off winning an Oscar for the future. He's pretty much completely wasted. And you can see there's, there's an issue in the scenes with Tommy Lee plays Harvey Dent. There's an issue in the scenes with him and Jim because Tommy Lee is a guy who was generally going to just read the fucking lines, kid, like that kind of guy. We're going to do what we're presented. And you could see Jim's um, instinct to improvise if the director has given him permission to do so. As I had said with Deadpool, where he talked about going to Clint Eastwood, who was, you know, uh, played Dirty Harry, directed the film, asking Mr. Eastwood, call me Clint, call me Clint, kid. Uh, can, I, can I try something different with this scene? And Clint famously said, why don't we just turn the camera on? Just let the kid go. I don't think that he would have simply started improvising without telling Joel Schumacher. And Schumacher, again, he's not going to tell biggest, suddenly the biggest star in his cast, no, 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 stick to the script, kid. There are certain filmmakers that would have done that. Woody Allen would have done that. Was it, no, 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 just read the lines. Maybe later we'll try it. Stanley Kubrick, read the fucking lines or you're fired. Don't screw around with me. Come on. So there are issues with Tommy Lee, and Tommy Lee Jones, he never said, oh, I hate that guy, but there were definitely problems. And if you watch the scenes between them, it's as if Tommy Lee is almost looking off screen, what the fuck is this guy doing here? He's not reading the lines properly. How am I supposed to, like, the movie is fun, it's entertaining, and there was even supposedly like a renegade cut that Kevin Smith uh, saw, which is longer and actually makes more sense and gives you more of the depth of Bruce Wayne. Like, they kind of get into some of the stuff that he got into in Batman Begins, but because the movie was pitched at a comedic angle, the set design, the bright colors, as opposed to the very hardcore and straightforward production design, especially of Batman Returns. Batman Returns production and costume design is off the hook. It's incredible. I don't really like that movie. It's, I don't find it entertaining at all. The first one with, you know, with Jack, yes, super entertaining. But Batman Forever looks great, it's beautiful, it made a ton of money, and it just kept, you know, sort of springboarding uh, Jim Carrey's career, just kept going up, and then he got the cable guy. Uh, he was the first guy to get paid $20 million for a movie, uh, a guarantee. So he did a sequel. It's so strange, because I don't know if this is because of the way that my brain works, but... Um, so just in this incredible short span of time, in less than two years, less than two years from the time Ace Ventura was released, Jim had Ace Ventura, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Batman Forever, and Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, which came out at the end of 1995. Now, they were all monster, massive hits at the box office. That's how he got Cable Guy. That's why the studio felt comfortable paying like Warner Brothers, $20 million up front, which is absolutely insane. Now it would seem insane. But for 1995, 96, crazy. But he got, he got $20 million for Cable Guy. So when you think about, again, the significance of Ace Ventura Pet Detective coming out of nowhere, there were no huge expectations. Remember, Hollywood, there are a lot of things that, that are different now. 
But some things that aren't is movies that are expected to be huge one way or the other usually don't get released in the first quarter of the year. Usually. Not always. If there is an issue, as I've talked about um, previously, like Silence of the Lambs, it was a distributor issue. That movie was wrapped and could have come out in 1990, and it definitely would have fucked with the 1990 Oscars of Goodfellas and Dances with Wolves. And Fargo, which should have come out in 1995 and definitely would have fucked with the Oscars of Braveheart, 100%. So sometimes there's that. But in the case of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, I feel as if the studio was not sure that the movie was going to be anything other than a bomb because they had heard the whispers and the test screenings. They probably weren't super positive. So they put it out there, and it is a true statement. You can Google this. That movie took people by surprise. It absolutely took people by surprise that it even made it to number one. You know what, a, a kind of soft time for the movies. You know, I think Gina Davis's movie, Angie, may have come out right around that time frame, and that was a movie people thought was going to be, you know, a hit, and it just didn't work. Despite the fact that James Gandolfini, who was on the rise, was great, as James Gandolfini was never not great. Even in Surviving Christmas with, the, with Ben Affleck, a terrible movie, Gandolfini is the highlight. There's just some people who have the magic. The late, great Mr. Gandolfini, he had that magic. He had that. But in the case of Ace Ventura, everything was a springboard from that movie. Jim Carrey's career and everything was all because of that. Because if Ace Ventura had bombed, the mask probably wouldn't have gotten as big of a push. I think the mask would have been a hit anyway, but Carrie probably doesn't get Dumb and Dumber until after, and then that movie might not end up getting made, and he may end up not even being in Batman Forever. And then he's not getting 20 million for the cable guy. So you start looking at a butterfly effect or a, a ripple effect of flipping a stone into the water and seeing it skip along. Ace Ventura was, it was a key film. It made everything else possible because it hit and took people by surprise and because, it, yes, it was released during a soft period where people were craving, they were excited to see something funny. And the trailer is really good. It makes it look like madcap, screwball antics. Hey, isn't that the guy from In Living Color? And even with it just trashing critically, it got people into the theaters. And then it became a hit. I remember when it was released to video. That's how I saw it first. There were certain scenes that were added. You wonder why they took them out, because they were actually some, some very good, clearly improvisational stuff, where they simply told Jim, knock yourself out. You know, do five minutes of shtick, and we'll see what we can put in the movie. And there's nothing wrong with that. Bill Murray in Ghostbusters, at least half of his lines are ad-libbed in the original Ghostbusters. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats, living together, best hysteria. Not in the script. Works. Eddie Murphy, another great talent, all-timer, who was famous for not just following the script. Sometimes it doesn't work. As I had said with Jim and, um, and Tommy Lee Jones, some of the kind of, where you can almost sense a tension where Tommy Lee is wondering what's happening. Uh, in Harlem Nights, which was a movie that kind of started Eddie's sort of downturn there in the late 80s. It's okay. But when you have an actor who is ad-libbing and then you have other actors who are trained differently and they're sticking to the script, you start squinting. It's like, well, that dialogue doesn't really work. There's scenes between Eddie Murphy and Danny Aiello and, and Richard Pryor, another guy who could ad-lib, 
where it's like they're not in the same scene. One guy's talking about this and another guy's talking about that. Well, yeah, clearly, um, I, I don't think that Richard is following the script. Danny just is not trained the same way. He's reading his lines. He's wondering what the fuck is going on. I hope we get another take out of this. Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Cable Guy, as a bit of a postscript, ended up underperforming because it was a, it, it, directed by Ben Stiller, who I mentioned. Um, and Ben Stiller, it's really funny. He looked vaguely, vaguely like the Menendez brothers, the notorious Menendez brothers. And Ben Stiller, there's a couple of, there's characters in the movie that are supposed to be the Menendez brothers. And it's Ben Stiller kind of had fun with that. Um, the movie was promoted as another straightforward Jim Carrey comedy, and it wasn't. It was a dark comedy uh, with Matthew Broderick. And it goes to places you're not expecting it to go based on the preview, which made it look, again, like another madcap Jim Carrey comedy. So when it, it came out, it kind of underperformed. Still made money. And Jim Carrey, even among critics who did not like some of his earlier work, the Owen Gliebermans of the world had come around. They had come way around. And the idea was, if we've got Paulie Shore, we've got Chris Farley, Jim Carrey's on another level. This guy is phenomenal. And I think it was Cisco and Ebert where they said, if you have the Paulie Shore level of humor here and Chris Farley is here, Jim Carrey's way up there. Like, how could you compare? Not easy. But the idea is that by the cable guy, not just that he was a big star, but he was, he was respected even by people who had thought Ace Ventura is a piece of shit. This Carrey guy is not going anywhere. Oops. So... What I'll close on is something that you could Google and look up on YouTube. And that is after the somewhat failure, because I think, I feel like, and I'm going to Google this just to be sure, I feel like the cable guy turned a profit, but the idea was the studio was expecting a hit on the order of the mask. And it was not. Right, so it grossed over $100 million. It wasn't a total box office bomb but it was expected to do a lot better. I feel like the studio would have expected it to be at least um, 200 million. Given what, that the original, that Ace Ventura actually did better in the US than the cable guy, despite you know, the names and, and the big marketing and Dumb and Dumber and Batman Forever and The Mask and all that. And, and Ace Ventura When Nature Calls as well. But Jim Carrey's performance was lauded, even among, I remember Newsday didn't like the movie, but they said, Carrie's just fucking amazing. He's amazing in this role. He sells it. He gives everything he has. He's not collecting a paycheck. He's trying to develop a three-dimensional character within the context of this weird black comedy that's darker than we thought it was going to be. So Jim Carrey that year ended up winning Best Actor in a Comedy, I believe it was, at the MTV Movie Award which is not a real awards show. You, you know who's going to win ahead of time. It's not like the Golden Globes or the Oscars or the Emmys or those kinds of shows. Jim Carrey went there knowing he was the winner. And he got up on stage and he said, he basically thanked everyone at, I believe it was Paramount that produced that. But we're going to assume it's Paramount. And he said, I want to thank all of the executives at Paramount who believed in this project. I hope you all found jobs. 
and the place cracked up laughing because I don't think he was wrong. A lot of people that were involved in that production, it's the same concept when Arnold Schwarzenegger, three years earlier, when Last Action Hero underperformed way more than Cable Guy relative to cost, Last Action Hero was a massive underperformance at the box office. There were a lot of guys at Columbia, Paramount, with Last Action Hero, TriStar, I think it was Columbia TriStar, was, was, uh, Paramount may have gotten involved in the distribution, but the point is, there were people involved in Last Action Hero. The joke is, you're only going to hear this guy's name if the movie bombs. If it succeeds, you're not going to hear about him or anything. If it bombs, he's fired, she's fired, he's fired, she's fired. And when the cable guy underperformed hugely, when the studio was so certain it was going to be a hit, a lot of heads rolled, metaphorically speaking. A lot of people did get fired. But that's the business. Nobody knows anything. In that case, people weren't ready for Jim Carrey in a black comedy. They wanted to see another mask, another dumb and dumber, not a comedy that almost plays a little bit like a psychological thriller. And you're not really sure just how screwed up Jim Carrey's character of the cable guy is. And with that, we've reached the end of episode 78, 30th anniversary of the release date of Ace Ventura Pet Detective, the film which propelled Jim Carrey to superstar. If you checked out episode 78 on the YouTube channel and haven't done so already, please click like, subscribe, and turn on those notifications. I'll be back with episode 79 real, real soon. All righty then. <laughs>